Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. We are Catholic. We are American. We are proud to be both. Those are the words that open the U.S. Bishop Statement, our first most cherished liberty, which basically lays out the mission of the USCCB's Committee for Religious Liberty. And I think it's pretty remarkable that despite being thoroughly established as part of the fabric of American life, a statement on religious liberty from the Catholic Church written in 2012 would open with an affirmation of Catholics' American identity. These questions about our identity as both Americans and Catholics have persisted from the founding of our country, and we continue to have these kinds of discussions. Um, For example, we still have discussions about things like religious tests for public office. We are joined today by an historian who is doing what I think is just some really amazing work to help us think through these kinds of questions. Dr. Michael Breidenbach is Associate Professor and Chair of History at Ave Maria University and Senior Affiliate for Legal Humanities at the Program for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America, published by Harvard University Press, and that's the book, that's the main thing we'll be talking about today. But he's also co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to the First Amendment and Religious Liberty, published by Cambridge University Press. Also numerous articles that we can't list them all now, but we'll put them on the website. Uh, Dr. Breidenbach, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Aaron and Mary. I have been wanting to do this for a while, ever since your book was published. Well, in fact, I even read one of your articles uh, a while back, and I've been interested in this for a long time. So um, really great that we are able to do this. Um, Your basic argument is that Catholics shaped the American founding, and they were able to do so by drawing from their theology of conciliarism. So there's a lot that you're complicating a, a narrative about. Catholics in American life. First of all, you know, there's lots of ways you could sort of jump in this conversation, I think. Um, but why don't we start with this, the question of what of conciliar, conciliarism. What is, when you say that they were influenced, they held conciliarist theological positions, what is that? What does conciliarism mean? So conciliarism is an ecclesiology, which means it's a view of how the church should be governed right? Who should govern it? What kind of authority uh, do the governors or leaders have within that corporate body, the church? And there were two basic rivals um, ever since the Middle Ages about how we should think about church governance. And obviously, this is a a simplification, but it's helpful um, to think about these two rivals um, to really get it precisely at how Catholics became American. One view held, and this is the conciliarist view, that there is a, um, the church is basically made up of the Pope, who is conceived as a kind of magistrate, right, who is elected, as we know, right, in papal conclaves. Um, But because he's elected, and because he's, as it were, simply a magistrate, um, he is limited in his spiritual jurisdiction. Um, There are other uh, leaders, other bishops, that is, who have spiritual jurisdiction and authority as well. And when they convene together in church councils, think of like the Second Vatican Council is the most recent example, um, they are the ones, right, collectively that have the supreme spiritual authority. It's not the Pope by himself. 
So um, this is what's very distinctive about conciliarism. It's um, basically a denial of papal infallibility. Um, conciliarists held that um, the, the Pope could be susceptible to doctrinal error and for that reason could be reprimanded or even deposed in the most extreme circumstances. So this looks a lot like, if you want to draw a kind of political analogy here, um, and the figures in my book uh, draw these analogies, conciliarism is sort of like republicanism in the sense that um, you know, the, the president or the prime minister or the prince um, is not absolute in his authority. In fact, it's his authority is sort of grounded in either something higher, right, God, or something lower, right, the people, um, but nonetheless is elected. And so his, his jurisdiction, his authority is circumscribed, right? It's limited. And he could be, as the case of uh, republics go, um, he could be impeached, right, uh, and thrown out of office if necessary, if um, he subverts, right, the, the political order in a serious way. And so that's the sort of um, conciliarist view. The other thing that's really important about conciliarism is that they denied that the Pope could intervene in the temporal affairs of, of countries, right, whether it's England, France, Spain, uh, and so on. So that's what's sort of distinctive about the conciliarist uh, view of how the church is governed. And, you know, jurists and theologians, basically from the 14th century onwards, had theorized this corporate view of the church. Um, but it was sort of formalized in the 15th century by a church council, the Council of Constance in 1414 to 1418. And that was to end the Western Schism, right? The thorny issue of who actually is Pope when there are multiple claimants to the uh, chair of Peter. And this particular council declared itself and other councils um, before and, and in the future to be higher in spiritual authority than the Pope. And it also repudiated this notion that the Pope had the authority in, in countries' temporal affairs. Now, that's one view of church governance. The other view is um, what I call in the book papalism, right? And it's not necessarily the, the, the complete opposite of conciliarism. In fact, they share a certain reverence from the Pope. Um, they certainly think the Pope is uh, at least first among equals. Um, there's a kind of center of ecclesiastical unity that the Pope provides. Uh, but papalism goes further, and it suggests that uh, the Pope is, in fact, infallible by himself on matters of faith and morals, or at least can be, right? He can exercise that authority uh, uh, if uh, he wants to in, in extreme circumstances. Um, and also held the view that the Pope did have power in the temporal affairs of, of countries, um, not directly. That is to say, the Pope could just send his own army in and, and take over a country or depose a, a king or something like that. Um, but indirectly, that is to say, through his teaching authority, uh, through the persuasion, uh, um, persuading other uh, kings uh, to do his bidding. Um, but even in, in other cases of annulling civil laws, right, declaring a certain law um, null and void, like uh, a pope did for Magna Carta, for instance, or declaring that your oath to a certain sovereign is, is therefore um, uh, no longer judiciable, right? You, you, I absolve you from this oath um, because this oath is to a, a heretical sovereign, that sort of thing. So um, that's those are the two sort of rival views. And if you think about it in terms of uh, Catholic assimilation or integration into 
uh, a non-Catholic country, this is going to be a really important conversation to have um, because the papalist view looks quite dangerous, in fact. Uh, it looks like you're delivering yourself up to a foreign uh, external uh, leader who uh, can claim certain political notions on your conscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that looks quite dangerous. It seems to me that what you're calling the papalist view is probably what forms the imaginations of most Catholics more often today. And so then, and then since we often like to contrast ourselves with Protestants, then when we learn about conciliarist Catholicism, you might, you can imagine a, a Catholic saying like, well, that's just Protestant. You kind of talk a little bit about this in your book that, well, there's a reason for that because Protestants took up conciliarist views. The conciliarist views predate were came before the Reformation. It was so it didn't spring from the Reformation. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Um, just kind of their relationship there. Right. If we could zoom out even further, um, you know, one of the ways that historians have answered the question how Catholics became American um, is that they became sort of like Protestants, right? Um, and they they had uh, certain notions about um, uh, like ecumenism. Uh, whether salvation is only through the church or not. They uh, democratized the liturgy. You know, John Carroll, the first Catholic bishop, famously uh, advocated for the the use of English in in, uh, the mass and so on. And so they're, um, you know, the push for the vernacular, um, the kind of uh, softening the confessional edges, right? Uh, Looks a lot like um, Catholics are trying to assimilate, you, you might say, a bit too much, right? That had been a contention. And one of the things that I want to show is, well, you know, if you look at the the main political reasons why Catholics were considered uh, dangerous and therefore were not tolerated, uh, it really has to do with uh, papal authority, sort of on the political level. Like, where do your loyalties lie, in fact? And if we if we say, as I argue in the book, that it's really because they denied certain papal authorities, well, then um, you can say that that looks like Protestantism. Um, but in fact, these these views about how the church should be governed predate the Protestant Reformation, predate Martin Luther. And in fact, uh, Martin Luther in the, you know, the cauldron of the 1520s publishes, you know, three uh, theological tracts so shortly after um, the um, uh, 95 Theses. And uh, he dedicates uh, one of the tracts on the freedom of a Christian uh, to Pope Leo. And, and says, basically, look, I'm not really attacking the papacy as such. I'm more concerned with the corruption around you, right? Um, the, the corruption of what he calls the court of Rome rather than the, uh, the church of Rome. And he appeals to a general council to resolve this dispute. So, you know, someone like Luther is very well um, uh, fluent in, you know, uh, church history and ecclesiology. He knows that church councils are sort of the last stop, um, the ultimate way to adjudicate serious doctrinal um, uh, debates. And so he appeals to this and, um, you know, arguably um, had the had the Pope called this earlier, effectively what became Trent, um, things might've uh, been resolved, or at least Luther would have been sidelined as so many others had been sidelined um, or, or worse. I mean, some were burnt at the stake in the Council of Constance for their for their heresy, but that might have been sort of, as it were, an internal reformation rather than something that that breaks. 
So Protestants did pick up conciliarism. Obviously, after the definitive break with the Church of Rome, um, they become less tenable. I mean, the, 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 it, it's simply not possible to, to bring all the bishops in the Christian community together because they're so uh, divided. Um, but there was a, a kind of affinity, right, um, uh, an attraction to this idea that the church is not an absolute monarchy. Mm-hmm. Right? There's shared governance. And Protestants really like that idea. And in fact, when we get to the American Republic, that that looks a lot more commodious to a kind of Republican view of thought. Mm-hmm. So then bringing it to the American Republic, um, uh, you know, a lot of your book talks a lot, is focused on Maryland Catholics. So just first of all, just introduce these figures to us because not all not everyone you know i we were talking earlier i live in maryland so i know who some of these figures are i see sort of monuments to them in different ways you know just around me in the built environment but many people don't know about some of these um figures so who were these important maryland catholics um who held these views who who held these conciliarist views and maybe say a little bit about, you know, which ones in, in particular were, were most important or most significant in their role in the founding. So the book traces um, the history of American Catholicism from effectively the 1600s to uh, the early 19th century. And the this kind of narrative backbone follows uh, two prominent Maryland Catholic families, the Calverts and the Carrolls. And as you say, if you've ever been to Maryland, uh, their names... Uh, have are inscribed in in streets and um, houses and counties and and so on, and they're the most prominent, uh, you know, the most elite uh, families in, in Maryland. There are hundreds of other cast of characters in the book um, who are associated with them, or um, you know, correspond with them, or indeed are just important for American Catholic history generally. But the Calverts and the Carrolls are the most prominent. Um, Maryland, of course, is founded by uh, the Calvert family, also known as uh, the Lords of Baltimore. And uh, once the the Calverts um, fall from political power um, and and later uh, convert to the Church of England and then sort of, as it were, resurrect that power in in Maryland, they become sort of less part of the story insofar as um, they're they're now uh, Anglican. Uh, and then I pick up the story from there with the Carroll family, um, who immigrated in 1688 from England, uh, a very momentous period of English history that we can talk about as well. Um, so those are the two families. The uh, George Calvert um, was born a Catholic in uh, North uh, Yorkshire, Northern England, uh, but was very quickly um, uh, coerced effectively into the Church of England conformity. Um, and because he conformed to the Church of England, he was able to go to um, the Anglican institutions like uh, Oxford University, uh, Trinity College, Oxford, uh, and really rise the ranks of uh, political power, uh, so much so becoming the first uh, Secretary of State. So this is basically the most important civil appointment um, a layperson, non-royalty, can obtain. Um, but Around the time that he's sort of at the height of his political career, he reverts to his childhood Catholicism. And what's fascinating about that reversion is that he isn't subject to the most onerous of penal uh, laws. He's not, you know, jailed. He's not uh, fined exorbitantly for his reversion to basically an outlawed religion. 
Uh, instead, he's actually given um, what's called a patent, a grant from the king uh, to found a colony in the New World. This could be a strategy of typical English policy of getting sort of uh, unwanted, undesirable, you know, people out of England um, and uh, founding a colony uh, very far away uh, for king and country. Um, but he had throughout his career uh, declared his loyalty and uh, in both, um, you know, statement and practice. And so I, I interpret George Calvert's good graces with the king because of his shared loyalty. So he tries um, to colonize uh, uh, a part of Can now we call Canada, uh, Newfoundland, uh, what he called Avalon. Uh, it was a failure because of the harsh winter. Uh, many of his colonists died. Um, he then sails to Virginia to see if he can sort of transplant himself there. Um, Virginians say, we don't want a papist. Um, and this is where the, the story gets interesting because he then furnishes an oath saying uh, that he is loyal to the king and so on, but he will not uh, declare certain uh, views about papal authority, uh, which is what these oaths require. And the Virginians say, well, we have no authority on this matter. Go back to England. And so he does. And uh, he gets a patent to found Maryland. Now, I'll just briefly mention this oath of allegiance because it's really important for the first part of the book. Um, the oath declared uh, or required that you declare that you had certain papal authorities that you deny. And the authorities were basically um, that the Pope could uh, depose princes, um, excommunicate kings, and therefore absolve Catholics from their oath to the king, and so on and so forth. Or in the most extreme case, the Pope could declare um, the king to be, um, that basically he's going to be murdered, um, that you could authorize a murder of a king, uh, also known as tyrannicide, right, if the king is um, particularly bad and heretical. Well, everyone, uh, upon you know, pain of of uh, penalty, required to take this oath if they wanted to, you know, join a, a political office or something like that. And um, George Calvert knew the the thorny issue that this was because the Pope said if a Catholic declares this oath, uh, that Catholic is excommunicated from the Church. So these are not great options, right? You either have uh, potential treason on the one hand and potential excommunication on the other. So every you know, um, settler from England going to the new world had to declare this oath. So if you want to create a so-called Catholic colony, this is going to be a particularly divisive issue that you're going to have to resolve. So what I found in the archives is that George Calvert and his son, Cecil Calvert, tries to, to square this circle, right? How can Catholics be good, you know, subjects of the king, good colonizers, and they effectively just erase from this oath of allegiance, uh, all the problematic clauses about the Pope. Um, so they declare that they're going to be loyal to the king and his successors and so on and so forth, that if they hear of any sort of murderous conspiracies that they're going to tell you know, the authorities, but they're not going to say anything about the Pope. So there's a kind of uh, putting this in kind of limbo, right, about what papal authority is and how far it extends. And that sort of is the solution that the Calverts propose. And what's amazing is that although many other people try to resolve this oath controversy, uh, they're the ones who practically succeed. And so if you look at the final oath in Maryland, um, you have um, basically all these clauses about the Pope excised, cut out. And um, this is the kind of solution that I um, show. Uh, again, so it's kind of loyally practical solution, it doesn't resolve the theological disputes, but it, it it's enough. Um, to provide Catholic toleration and to build this colony that's um, very tolerant of 
of Catholics and Protestants. Well, I, I'm just struck by how, um, I don't know, I guess my question is, how did this impact, um, you know, not just the Calverts and the Carols, but the actual, like the colonists themselves too. And also, I mean, you know, there's th this view of the church as an institution rather than a living witness to the gospel. I mean, was that even a consideration here? I mean, very much how you, you witness the gospel in your life is uh, such an important part of being Catholic. But, you know, to this is this is all very, you know, institutional kind of view of, yes. of being Catholic. And I guess I'm more wanting to know, you know, about this, how this impacted the Catholicism of like the everyday, the everyday Catholic trying to be, you know, an early colonist and, you know, early uh, Commonwealth of Virginia or, you know, Maryland? That's a great question. I, I think the reason why we're sort of front ending the, the institutional legal aspects of the story is because you have to sort of pass through that gate in order to ha be able to witness in the way that um, you want, right, as, as a Catholic. So in other words, if you feel like you're persecuted, right, and that legally you're sort of outlaws in your own country, your um, witness to the faith is very much limited and, in fact, um, often persecuted. So there are instances of people quietly going about their Catholicism, um, Jesuit priests in clandestine clothes coming to large aristocratic Catholic manors, and then sort of the local Catholic population, you know, packing themselves into one of the rooms and they have sort of a clandestine mass. Um, and then in those manners, you can go then to England today, there are what they call priest holes. These are where priests would sort of burrow into, um, you know, whether it's the, the kitchen sewer or something, um, sewage area, when bounty hunters would try to uh, find um, Jesuit priests. So, you know, this is the sort of um, persecution. I don't want to paint, you know, all of England all the time as, as, as a, 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 you know, a, a place where this happens. Um, but there are many examples of this. And, you know, the Calvert family is, is um, an example in which there's a kind of um, quiet co coercion involved. I mean, all their uh, papist books were uh, disposed of when, when found. And, you know, he was, uh, George Calvert was required to receive a, a Protestant tutor for his studies. He was not able to, I mean, Catholic schools were banned. Um, if you want to send your, your uh, child to a Catholic school, um, he would have to go to, to France. So that's the kind of um, sort of legal um, persecution that these Catholics had. Nonetheless, Catholicism continues. Um, there are great examples of, of devotional literature. Um, sometimes uh, you find very, in the museums uh, and archives, you find very, very small Catholic devotional books and, and uh, Bibles and very, very small print. And that's because they were hidden. Um, you know, uh, people would uh, just sort of cross the channel from, from France and, and send these, these, um, these manuscripts. So the, the, the faith survived despite these legal persecutions. Um, and, you know, even uh, a Jesuit priest came and the first, uh, uh, I think several Jesuit priests came uh, with the Maryland settlers in the first book, uh, boat, the Ark and then the Dove uh, to Maryland. Um, and so, you know, Catholicism lived on. They wanted to evangelize Native Americans. Um, but, you know, the, the legal issues were the kind of... Um, main prohibition, right? The, the, the obstacle that needed to be uh, overcome uh, before we get to something like 
uh, full religious liberty in the First Amendment. I know Todd has a question, but I just have to follow up on something that I, or I will forget. Um, because I'm glad that Mary asked the question about the, you know, we're focused on sort of aristocrats and high, these high level um, civil officials and that sort of thing. But like, did, did conciliarist views trickle down to pop in popular piety? Do you see evidence that like, say, like in little small catechisms and stuff like that, that, you know, maybe a family that was sort of working for the Calverts that was Catholic, like that they might have that they also held these sorts of views, or is this only held by sort of people operating at a high level? Um, e- either way, I mean, I guess it could go both ways. Yeah. But like at the popular level, you know, what what was it like? What were the views on these sorts of things? Or do we have much evidence for that sort of thing? So we have much fewer evidence um, simply because um, literacy rates were very, very low. And uh, so, so not only people generally didn't read, but they certainly didn't write as well. And so very little is sort of left behind that an historian, especially an intellectual historian, uh, has to, uh, to offer. We do have certain um, bits of evidence uh, to, to answer your question, though. So the Jesuits, this is in the 18th century, and we haven't talked about the Carols very much, so we should get to them eventually. Um, so by the 18th century, the Jesuits have a lending library. And um, if you look at the inventory of that library, this is sort of, um, if you could read, you could check these books out. Um, they have uh, certain devotional literature and catechisms um, that uh, really, you know, sort of um, diminish uh, the Pope's authority in, in certain ways. So they speak of the Pope as the kind of center of ecclesiastical unity. They uh, speak of the Pope um, as uh, as as you know, as a father that we ought to sort of uh, have due deference uh, to, but certainly not the kind of high ultramontane nineteenth-century view of the Pope that we're often familiar with. Um, and this is consistent with other catechisms that were circulating in the eighteenth century under John Carroll's bishopric. Um, you know, catechisms from from Scottish Catholics that were uh, published in America. Uh, if you look at the entry f- uh, to the Pope. Um, it's very, um, very minimal, right? Um, and if you look at the Encyclopedia of Britannica, for instance, um, there's a whole um, discourse about conciliarism and papalism. And the author, uh, a Catholic, um, says that effectively the church is not what Protestants think it is. It's not the kind of absolute monarchy. It's much more of a, in a conciliarist vein. So if people are, are, are reading these things, um, this is what they're getting. Um, and certainly, um, you know, with the the rise of the of communication, and certainly in the 19th and 20th centuries, with greater numbers of encyclicals and so on, we get much more of a sort of a prominence of the Pope. But in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, very few people would have even known what the Pope looks like. I mean, they would pay, pray for the Pope, but um, he's very sort of a distant figure in some ways if you're living in America. Um, so uh, your your bishop is much more sort of present to, to you. All right, Todd, I'll get out of your way. I know, at last. Now, I have a, a comment and a question. One of the things that I was really, really liked was the fact that you explored the ways in which the carols formed by their time in Europe. Their thinking on these issues was was very much a formative experience. It wasn't just like they grew up in America, ideas were imported, and they were influenced by those ideas from afar. Transatlantic Catholicism is is something that I think that's underappreciated sometimes. Um sort of rather than looking at the revolutionary period, looking right afterward. Um, 
namely if like what happened to conciliarism you know in the post-revolutionary period you have sort of influx of immigrants um who were um you know declared as papists and you know allegiance to the foreign power of the pope and then you have that clear papal infallibility which seems to undercut conciliarist kind of logic so how does that does it just sort of in the revolutionary period and then it just kind of peters out or does it continue on in certain ways that remain influential within an american context yeah very good question sort of what's the legacy of of conciliarism uh and this anti-papalist stance insofar as 150 years ago now in the first vatican council um it's been resigned to the ash heap of heresy right i mean definitively the first the first uh, vatican council uh declared pempafallibility to be uh true dogma defined it uh helpfully um because before you know pempafallibility was sort of undefined um there's sort of a general constellation of concepts that uh, people had um thought was um uh, infallibility but i've 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 seen in sort of um vatican records cardinals asking themselves well i'm not sure if this is an infallible you know um uh, on faith declaration or not and so there's great confusion and in some ways the first vatican council helpfully sort of articulates what exactly infallibility means but insofar as they did so um conciliarism becomes um inoperable a, a you know a very interesting sort of uh, historical concept but uh, not a living sort of as it were doctrine so what then is the legacy well um Basically, by the time Alexis de Tocqueville writes uh, his Democracy in America in the 1830s, um, he has a chance to interview Charles Carroll of Carrollton, uh, who's the last surviving signer of the Declaration of Independence. He's rather old in his 90s. And um, he meets with uh, Carroll's secretary and he asks Carroll's secretary, you know, what, what do Americans think about the church? And he said, um, you know, effectively, uh, infallibility rests in all the bishops, uh, not the pope himself. And so, you know, the Carols and, um, you know, many others who held this uh, sort of conciliarist view um, had really persuaded, I think, um, you know, let's call, let's call it the average Catholic, if they're thinking about these things, um, that that's where uh, infallibility rests. That's how the church is governed. By the time we get to, you know, Bishop England and Bishop Ireland and these 19th century bishops, we see the same kind of argument. Uh, very famously, uh, one of the bishops in uh, the U.S. Congress uh, testified and said, Catholics are good Republicans. We don't think the Pope is infallible by himself. There's nothing in our faith that's at odds with American maxims, and so on and so forth. Um, that became the kind of, um, let's call it the bullet points of, um, you know, if you want to be a, um, a Catholic hierarch. We get waves of, of immigrants from, Catholic immigrants from Europe, we begin to unsettle uh, this this um, view of American Catholic identity, um, and certainly the rise of ultramontane uh, views, a papalist view, animates a lot of Protestant angst. Right, uh, this is where we get you know sort of the Bible riots and um, uh, sort of the Know Nothing Party of the 19th century and many other anti-Catholic movements, um, because they go back to this sort of rather old uh, shibboleth that you know Catholics can't be good citizens because they deliver themselves up to a foreign prince, the Pope. And so it's sort of the basic way that I describe this is it kind of goes back and forth. It's, it sort of oscillates between, you know, seeing Catholics as, you know, uh, good Republicans uh, based on this kind of anti-papalist stance. And then other people say, no, that's that's just false. 
right? They actually don't believe that. They they really do have this kind of authoritarian view of their church, of the Pope at the center and at the, at the top. And then, of course, with John F. Kennedy, we get the, the very um, ringing endorsement of, of, of America and his space within it as a Catholic potential president in, in 1960, when he says, I do not speak for the church and the church does not speak for me. I believe in absolute separation of church and state and um, that no prelate, right, can tell a, ca- a president, should he be a Catholic, uh, how to sort of basically conduct himself, that he swears an oath to the constitution, not to the Pope and so on and so forth. And that's sort of the the kind of, let's call it the practical view, right? And if you ask, I think most uh, American Catholics today, they would say something like, yeah, Pope Francis doesn't have the power to depose, you know, presidents and, you know, annul civil laws and so on and so forth, uh, even though they would uh, uh, subscribe to, you know, the first Vatican Council's decree on papal infallibility. So that's the sort of, um, what I see it as sort of today, uh, they deny one aspect of the anti-papalist stance, right, and affirm uh, the other. So they kind of split the question. And so that's that's uh, how effectively uh, Catholics have resolved it, although we get it sometimes in, in public discourse, you know, the dogma lives loudly within you, you know, those sort of quips um, pop up and uh, they sort of resurrect these very old questions again. You've mentioned a couple of the questions I want to ask before we wrap up, but one of the, you know, you've kind of mentioned it a few times, but maybe spend a a little more time talking about this issue of loyalty. You know, as you've said, Catholics could be seen as a problem for the American Republic because they have divided loyalties. The Carols having been influenced um, or or having absorbed this uh, conciliarist theology had had a way to address that, that issue. So can you talk about why why was loyalty such key? You've kind of said why loyalty matters, but how did the Carols say a little bit more about how the Carols were were so key in addressing the loyalty question? Right. So the the Carols. This is Charles Carroll Carrollton, um, famously known for being the only Catholic to sign the Declaration of Independence. He was also a, a congressman, um, a senator rather, um, in the first federal Congress. Uh, he drafts uh, substantially Maryland's constitution, the Declaration of Rights, um, one of the wealthiest uh, individuals in America, uh, and sadly, uh, due in no large part to his slaveholding. S- his second cousin, Daniel Carroll, was um, a-, a framer of the U.S. Constitution and the Articles of Confederation, a congressman in the first federal Congress. Both of them uh, were at the-, the finalizing drafting committee for the First Amendment. And then Daniel Carroll's uh, brother, Bishop John Carroll. These are the three major Carrolls that I uh, talk about, in addition to um, Carrolls before, who are important mostly for Maryland history, and um, many others who sort of helped uh, the kind of uh, founding moment in America. But the Carrolls are in particular important because, as as Todd mentioned, um, they went to Europe in part because that's the only way they could get a Catholic education. Uh, and were sort of uh, they they absorbed uh, these uh, conciliarist views, and also just the the, the swirling um, uh, theories of of enlightenment thought and so on and so forth. Um, but it's important to note that they encountered this and, and absorbed these um, these views before the revolution, right? So it wasn't simply just a, a kind of uh, reaction uh, to revolutionary thought, as if they're just sort of 
picking from the shelf, you know, views that sort of uh, will work. Um, so when it comes down to being sort of practical statesmen and, you know, uh, a, as bishop, um, these carols are, are important for this question of, of loyalty. Bishop Carroll, for instance, uh, when he becomes bishop, in, or before he becomes bishop, insists that the election, that the bishop should be elected by the clergy and not uh, appointed by the Pope. That was very important for him because he wanted to conform, you know, the American Catholic Church as much as possible to American sensibilities. And he didn't want it to, to look like the church is this kind of absolutist, uh, you know, body. Um, it's also very important for Carroll that uh, the oath that he has to sign as bishop uh, to the Pope uh, has nothing about persecuting heretics, right? Um, he just excises that. So Catholics are all about sort of cutting out the clauses and oaths uh, that, that are um, incompatible with their views uh, in America. Uh, John Carroll also pens two anonymous letters in support of a no religious test for public office clause in the U.S. Constitution. He's emphatic about this. Um, he says it's, it's, it's a great persecution that Catholics have toiled under um, in English history for many centuries. Um, it's, it's a relic, right, of religious intolerance. Um, and in fact, um, uh, that, of course, uh, finds its way into the U.S. Constitution, Constitution as well. Loyalty before liberty is, is although really important, you have to pledge your, your loyalty before you are protected in your liberty. That's not just a monarchy problem, right? Because monarchs are all about loyalty to themselves, right? You can see why um, throughout the ages, very ancient view that you have to sort of somehow pledge your loyalty to the, to the sovereign. Um, but even in republics, we find this. Um, one example is the naturalization oath that all immigrants who want to be naturalized citizens have to take. It really hasn't changed in text since um, 1795 when it was first proposed as, as a text. Obviously, the requirements have changed. Before, it was only free white men, but now um, it's available to 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 all. Um, but you still have to pledge this oath, and you have to, in this oath, um, forswear any external allegiances, right, to any state power, you know, um, and so on. And um, potentate. So all naturalized immigrants have to say the word potentate right before they become U.S. citizens. It's actually quite early modern. It's it feels kind of old. Um, uh, and it's remained unchanged. And, you know, some people interpreted this as um, as an anti-Catholic text, right? Because if you have to abjure all your previous allegiances, does that include the Pope, right? Or, you know, or, you know, a bishop, a foreign bishop somewhere or something like that. Um, and that actually, the debate came to the Congre Congress floor. And James Madison, uh, after Samuel Dexter of Massachusetts goes on about, you know, uh, anti-Catholic rhetoric, James Madison pipes in and says, no, uh, Catholics are good Republicans. Um, and of course, um, he knew the Carols quite well, and, and it could say with some authority that um, they adhere to the maxims of Republicanism. Um, so, you know, we find this constant uh, refrain of um, Catholics are divided in loyalty, Catholics answering that, um, and uh, they answer it in part because they know that loyalty is the kind of precondition uh, before you enter a, a political community and receive protection of your rights. I think we're going to have to wrap up soon. But Mary, any did you have a final question? No, no, I'm just processing all this and thinking like, wow, I, we got it in some ways pretty good compared to back then. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think the the the, the founding generation uh, had basically decided that the kind of res- religious persecution of the 16th, 17th centuries um, practically wasn't working. Um, and so there are a lot of sources for what we call American religious liberty. And uh, I'm a big proponent of thinking that a lot of that is just simple practicalities. It just it's not practical to um, have a, a monopoly over religion as a state, right? It's not practical to constantly be embattled and embittered, right, against your your fellow Christians in this case, right, Protestants and Catholics. Um, it's much more conducive to you know a, a flourishing uh, economically and otherwise society to have people living together peaceably as far as possible. And that's what sort of the Maryland um, example shows. Uh, Maryland provides the uh, first uh, systematic law for religious toleration in early America. And it's basically premised on this idea that that we just basically need to get along peaceably. Um, so as long as you pledge you know, your allegiance to the, the Maryland proprietor, Lord Baltimore, uh, and to the king, and um, uh, you promise not to sort of... Um, Convey against your your fellow neighbors, right, and call them certain bad words and or or blast blaspheme and so on, uh, and you live basically peaceably. Then then uh, we're gonna we're gonna flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the First Amendment um, sort of carries that tradition in some ways. It it provides the kind of conditions for a peaceable society. It doesn't resolve theological disputes. In some ways, since you know if you give people religious liberty. Uh, those disputes might actually increase, right? Um, there's more competition. There's more sort of flashpoints. Um, but as long as you respect other people's uh, religious liberty, then then you can have the kind of society, at the very least, in which people can have that discussion and uh, you know live out their conscience as they see fit. Um, and so that's the kind of vision. It's actually quite, in some ways, minimal vision. It's not the thick sort of vision of this is the true faith and we're going to promote this. Uh, as much as possible. It's much more modest. But if you're coming from, you know, uh, a situation where your religion is persecuted, that modest proposal of religious toleration is much more amenable. Well, I think that I could talk to you for a long time about this. I really appreciate um, you coming on for this. And um, are you still working in this area right now? Or have you moved on to other projects um, what's what's next, kind of? Because this was recently published, this book, Our Dear Bot Liberty. I could imagine it being still a pretty fertile field of research. But um, what's next, kind of? Yeah, so I have one project I'm finishing up. Um, I'm reviewing a, a book on uh, Elizabeth Ann Seton, hmm. and um, who sort of carries the story forward, right? She um, sort of uh, was born in the the moment of, of revolutionary fervor, and um, and uh, corresponds and meets with Bishop Carroll. So there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, I'm moving to uh, a book on the politics of naming in early America. So I'm, I'm interested in the ways in which um, names uh, say the same or change in revolutionary times. So if you think about France and the French Revolution, they name everything, right? Rename everything, the churches, the cities, the state, the, 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 um, the regions. Um, in America, they they rename some things and uh, like King's College becomes Columbia College or University. Um, but the College of William and Mary stays the same. That's named after royalty. You know, half the states are named after royalty. Why? Right. What does that say about our revolution? And uh, I, I suppose this has contemporary resonances when when, uh, you know, names are being changed. 
you know, uh, we're, we're questioning certain uh, definitions and uh, living in a time when um, names mean a lot uh, politically, right, religiously and so on. So um, that's my next project. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much again for um, um, joining us. It's been a great conversation. Um, I think it's very interesting to learn about you know, some assumptions that we may have had, or the, this typical story is that this is a Protestant country and Americans uh, and Catholics had to figure out ways to, to fit in. And, and this sort of, sort of complicates that, as we said a little bit. So I, I really appreciate that kind of history that sort of makes us reimagine how reimagine things or what we thought was the case. So really appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you. Thanks for great questions and for speaking. We've been talking with Dr. Michael Breidenbach about his book, Our Dear Bought Liberty. I'm Aaron Weldon, and I've realized I forgot to introduce Todd, that Todd had the question, and then I didn't introduce him at the beginning. So we've also been joined by Todd Scribner, our colleague from Migration and Refugee Services, and Mary McCluskey. Yes, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. (laughs) 